I'm going to do very little except I hope to control things during the questions and make sure Donald doesn't speak for too long, um, which it would be almost impossible for him to do. Um, Donald is uh, a long, long standing member of this church, a long standing member of, of the economics department in this great city. He was a fellow of Jesus College, lecturer in the Department of Economics, and as uh, Andrew's already alluded to, latterly the head of all of the social scientists in Oxford, something he did with great distinction. He's also, uh, crucially, the author of a book called Economics Today, which is an extended uh, effort to bring Christian understanding of theology, the biblical material, and economic theory absolutely to work together. And the subject that Donald's going to be talking to us about tonight is one where that effort seems crucial, a, a massive issue for the whole world in the last decade or so, and one where we would hope as Christians we had something to say beyond regretting some of the consequences. And I think what we'll learn from Donald this evening is the way in which we can try to bring a Christian understanding of the world to bear on this apparently very worldly set of issues. So I'm looking forward to it enormously, Donald, and, and we'll get back to questions later. Thank you. Well, they say that when an economist starts to speak, uh, usually that's the point at which most people turn off. So I'm just hoping that I can keep you amused at least for the first few minutes. What I want to do is really to explore what were the origins of the financial crisis of 2007-8. And why is that so important? Well, the answer is because there are a lot of folk out there who are very worried that it might happen again. So what we're trying to do then is to try and say, well, are there things which we uh, can understand about it? And basically, I think people who have commented on the financial crisis fall into one of two categories. There's one category who say it was all the bankers behaving badly. So that's one thesis, is that the financial crisis was simply that the bankers behaved badly. Uh, another thesis is that there are fundamental flaws in the financial system and we need to do something to correct those. And if you want to have, as it were, examples of those two approaches, you might, for example, if you're feeling really keen, go and read the report of the Independent Commission on Banking, which was published in late 2011 and was chaired by Sir John Vickers, who's the Warden of All Souls. And he's very much looking at fundamental flaws in the structure of the financial system. On the other hand, you might, if you take the other view that it's bankers behaving badly, you might want to go and look at the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards, which published a couple of years ago, and that was a group on which the present Archbishop of Canterbury played a major part. So let me just run quickly through what I see as the outline of the lecture. First of all, I'm going to talk about financial markets and how the 2008 crisis arose. I'm again going to look at the question, was the financial crisis a technical crisis? I'm then going to ask the question, was it a moral crisis? And as Andrew has made clear, what I'm going to do there is address that question from the standpoint of Christian ethics for economic life. And then I'm going to finish off by asking the question, never again. What can we do to stop it? And I've got some uh, areas to cover there. Can I just make it clear that I'm not going to talk about the recent financial crisis in China? 
I'm going to focus on the United States and the UK experience. Now, to begin with, I think it's quite important that we get really clear in our minds what the financial uh, markets and institutions, what do they do? What are they for in an advanced economy? And the first and most obvious thing is what you know happens every time you go to an ATM to get cash out, or you write a check, or you organize a standing order, or you pay online in some way or another. So it's very important that we have, in a capitalist market economy, we have a really well-functioning payment system. The second thing that the financial sector does is that it takes the savings of the economy and it channels it into productive uh, investment by borrowers. And these can be in the form of firms that are investing in plant and machinery, but it could also be they're lending to households to buy a house or to improve their houses or, or whatever it is. But there's a third element which I think most people don't fully understand, and that is that there's an important role for the financial sector in the management and reduction of risk. And let me just give one very simple illustration of this. As you know, we have a stock market in London, and there we have a very large number of uh, firms whose shares are quoted. What that means is, of course, that if you want, as it were, to invest in major firms, you can do it by buying shares in those companies. And what's more, because of the stock market, you know that if you ever wanted your money back, you could do it more or less immediately. All right? So it's, it's a system which adds, as it were, the ability not only to own a range of assets, but also to move them around and so on, and also to get your money back if you want to. So it greatly reduces your risk of investing. Let me now move on to what I think are three key developments in the financial market since the 1980s. And the first one, um, I get to explain as simply as I can. It's the issue of securitization, which many people have written, read in the newspaper and they have no idea what's going on. So let me just try and give you an illustration. What is securitization? Imagine that I'm a banker, and I've dressed as a banker this evening just to make it seem more authentic. Imagine that I'm a banker. And I've lent, let's say, a hundred million pounds in mortgages to a huge range of borrowers. What I can do with securitization is I can bundle all those mortgages together to form a single financial asset, all right, which I will call a mortgage-based security, back security. Okay? I can then sell off tranches of it to other people. All right, to other banks usually. So I might uh, sell off, say, five million to this bank, another five million to some other bank, and so on. So in the end, I, as the initiating banker, may end up holding maybe only 10% of the original uh, value of the mortgages. That becomes very important, as you'll see shortly. The second big uh, development since the 1980s is what I call operations in financial asset markets. And again, here are lots of words you will have seen, things like derivatives and options and hedge funds. And I think you should be very glad that I'm not going to try and explain those all to you this evening. All right? um, but what, what I want you to know about them 
is that they are operations which are entirely in the financial markets. They have no link whatsoever to what's going on in the real economy. They are purely trading in assets, financial assets in one way or another. And then the third thing that's happened since the 1980s is, as you probably know, international financial markets have been globalized. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me just give you an example. Many securitized assets, those mortgage-based securities, were created in the US um, in the early years of the century. They then sold not just to other American banks, they sold to a lot of European banks as well. So lots of European banks were holding those assets. And that becomes a very important part of the story which we have to tell. So let's look at the origins of the crisis of 2008. I'm told, though this is almost certainly apocryphal, that um, when the Queen visited the LSE uh, late in 2008, and they had all these distinguished economists lined up to greet her, she just had one question for them. She said, why didn't anybody know this was going to happen? And they all apparently looked very shamefaced. So... She asked the right question. How did it happen? Well, everybody agrees that the financial crisis started in the US mortgage market. <clears throat> there was a glut of savings, and I can explain later on if you want me to where those came from. So interest rates were very, very low. I'm talking at the beginning of this century. And the banks were desperate to lend that money and get a return. And so what they did was they started lending money to mortgage borrowers who simply had no real prospects of returning the cash. Okay? This is what sometimes is called the uh, subprime market. And rather nicely, the, um, the people who borrowed were called the ninja borrowers. Ninja stands for no income, no job, no assets. All right? Um, it was, it was a, the rules were relaxed, all right? And it was all thought to be a part of a great American dream of everybody being able to own their house, even the poorest. What happened was, as more and more money went into the housing market, is that the prices of houses boomed in the States. So it happens elsewhere. It doesn't just happen here. It happens in the States as well. And people felt a lot better because the property they part-owned, seemed to be worth a lot more money. And so they went to the banks and they borrowed money to buy themselves cars and yachts and to do up the kitchen and those sorts of things, home improvements. So they ended up borrowing a lot of money and consumer debt soared. And then the bad news was that the housing bubble burst. The prices of houses began to fall. Borrowers walked away in a way in which they, can do, they could do in the States, but you can't do here. They actually just walked away from their loans. They shut up the house, walked down to the bank, put the keys through the door, and that was it. And as soon as that happened, then immediately the thing began to kind of implode because the prices went down enormously. And the key thing, and now I'm back to why I explained to you about mortgage-backed securities they became virtually worthless. 
So all the banks who were holding those assets now had on their balance sheets assets which were virtually worthless. And that, in fact, was what led to the demise of Lehman Brothers because they had a lot of these mortgage-backed securities and they weren't worth anything at all. Unfortunately, it didn't end there in the States. It came to Europe. And part of the problem was, as I have already said, many European banks are also holding these assets. So they suddenly had a great hole in their balance sheets. They had things which they thought were worth a lot of money, which weren't worth anything. Unfortunately, something else had been happening in Britain, and that was that the banking sector in Britain had built its financial models on the basis of debt. And the great expert at this was Fred Goodwin and the Royal Bank of Scotland, and we know what happened to them. And the particular problem was that they relied on borrowing very short term. So as soon as somebody needed the money back, they had to produce it. But actually they couldn't produce it because they didn't have any assets which they could sell because the assets weren't worth what they had been before. And that, of course, led to a run on the banks and the authorities intervened. So the question then is, well, was it purely a technical issue? So let's move on to, was it, a, was it a, a technical issue? What happened in Britain was that many of our big financial institutions, particularly the major banks, were involved in retail banking, that is banking for individuals and for small companies. They were involved in investment banking, that is making major loans to companies to finance investment. And they were also operating in asset markets. And so all three activities all came under one umbrella. So as soon as those banks made losses in investment banking and asset markets, the danger was they wouldn't be able to maintain their retail operations. Now, if you want to ask me, well, what would that mean? The answer is you would have gone to your ATM, put your card in, and it would have said, sorry, no cash. And I don't know whether you can imagine what would happen to an economy like Britain if every time people put their card in, it came up with the thing, sorry, no cash. And that was the real danger. And that was why the government had to, and the Bank of England had to intervene big time to bail out the banks to make sure that they could actually maintain the payment system. Now, of course, it's not as simple as that. Uh, because there were losses. And a great deal is talked of about the losses that fell on taxpayers, because taxpayers had to, to actually um, bail out the banks. But actually, most of the losses fell on all of us. And how was that? Well, it fell on our pension funds, because they were the people who invested big time in financial institutions in the UK, and those pension funds lost lots of money. So this is not a kind of a minor thing. This affected every single one of us here, uh, so long as we have some kind of pension pot. Another thing happened as a result of this was 
complete erosion of trust in financial markets. People no longer trusted each other. Banks would no longer lend to each other. And the whole thing actually froze. So there are some big issues there about the way in which suddenly the financial sector, in a sense, ceased to operate. And it was only because the government intervened on a big time that actually even the payment system kept going. But there's some other quite interesting, uh, important points, technical points. And it's, uh, let's go on, on to this. I've explained to you the securitization issue, all right? Now, let us suppose I am the banker, I've securitized 100 million pounds worth of mortgages, and I've sold a tenth of that to Andrew over there who runs another bank, all right? The thing is, of course, he has no idea who I've lent the money to, all right? Because all he's buying is a financial asset. He's not buying a list of mortgages. Okay? Now, what incentives does that give me? First of all, it means that if I'm the initiating banker, it means I'm much more prepared to take some risks. Can you see why? Because if in the end only 10% is mine, and the other 90% has been spread over other holders, I'm not going to be so careful to whom I lend. And that became a really serious matter. And it's part of that is, lies right at the, the heart of what went wrong with the banking sector, that many people were holding assets, and they had financial assets, and they had no idea what the real assets were that lay behind it. And the other thing, uh, which I think is is technically a problem, was what I call financial wizardry. Um, I know a little bit about this because quite a lot of my former students went into financial wizardry and did pretty well out of it. And I do apologize that I didn't teach them better. Um, Or perhaps I taught them too well because they did well out of it. But basically... What, with the, what happened with the financial wizards in the city of London is that they were operating entirely in asset markets. They had no idea what these assets represented in the real world. All they were interested in was prices which were moving on screens. All right, And they had models, very clever models, for valuing these things. Now, the sad truth is that those models worked fine when stock markets did that. They didn't work when stock markets did that. And basically, they were using the wrong models to value these things. So I hope that I've said enough without getting too technical to say, look, technically there were some some big problems. Now, let me now switch to a different area, which was this area of... Was the financial crisis a moral crisis? And I want to look at four, as it were, Christian ethical understandings. And the first one I want to start with is just simply the requirement of responsible stewardship. And it's very, very simple. It says, we live in a world which has lots of resources. We have lots of talents. We have lots of knowledge and so on. We should use those responsibly to serve human flourishing. And in the first place... 
What does that mean? It means making sure people have food to eat, houses to live in, clothes to wear, uh, and a minimal amount that they can uh, interact socially. And the whole idea there is, is the idea of stewardship. And how do we do that? The answer is we do it by working. In other words, work is very important. Work is the way in which we use uh, resources wisely. So, was the financial crisis a moral crisis? How does it square up to the requirement of responsible stewardship? As I've said, the primary role of the financial sector is to support the real economy and productive work. And it didn't do it. In particular, there was this misplaced priority accorded to financial wizardry, which had nothing to do with the real economy. So large parts of the city were operating on things which did nothing to serve real jobs, real productive uh, activity. There's another thing which is, is quite interesting. I don't know whether you've ever tried to find out how some of your investments what they are actually supporting. Um, in other words, supposing you, you're in a pension scheme, do you know what assets your pension scheme are investing in? Remember, it's your money. It's not the pension fund scheme. It's your money. So you, I think, should be responsible for the way in which it's being used. You can't do it. And I'll tell you why the reason you can't do it, because there's an enormous gap between you as the person who is putting your savings into that and where the money is ending up, uh, what it's ending up supporting. You may find, in fact, if you look at it very carefully, that your money is supporting all sorts of things of which you profoundly disagree. But there's no way you can find out. And that's a very big problem. Okay, let's go on to the next thing. What's the financial crisis, the moral crisis? And... I want to just briefly look at the pursuit of wealth and possessions. Uh, Jesus famously said, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And basically, I think there are two points here. The first is that wealth can become an obsession. It can become the object which we worship. And it draws us away from other things which are good in our lives. And the second thing is, and there's evidence on this, it's a curious fact that more and more possessions do not make us any happier. That has been established beyond any doubt whatsoever. Once you've gone beyond a kind of, as it were, a basic level of life, more possessions do not make people on average happier. So let's ask, well, what kind of culture do we live in? So we live in a culture of wanting more and more. And this showed itself in the financial crisis in two ways. The first was the famous bonus culture in the financial institutions. Basically, these gave people in the financial sector incentives to behave both badly and unwisely. Badly because they faced, they, they looked solely at short-term gains and unwisely because they took all kinds of risks they never should have taken. But it's not just the bankers. We all joined in. We all joined in. Do you know that even now, 
after a lot of the repayments and so on that people have made, on average, each household in this country has six point five, sorry, six and a half thousand pounds worth of credit card debt. Short-term debt. That adds to £48,000 worth of mortgage debt. Or if we look only at those households that have a mortgage, £111,000 worth of mortgage debt. So what, what went wrong? Well, the answer is, I think a number of things went wrong. First of all, we became addicted to consumption. We live in an economy which actually runs on consumption. Secondly, we saw default on debt as morally acceptable, which is quite a big change. And thirdly, we decided that we wouldn't care about the future, so we wouldn't pay money into our pension schemes, and we would kind of live for today and hope it would all turn out okay in the end. I wonder what Jesus would say as he looks at that. Let's go on. Caring for the poor and disadvantaged, the Apostle John wrote, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And basically, what, the, uh, what Christian ethics for economic life say is they say two things. One is every person has a right to share in goods to meet their basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. Those needs mainly to be met by doing productive work. But also, the rich have an obligation to help the poor. So what happened in the financial crisis? Well, there's a huge amount of lending to low-income households for very basic needs. The housing crisis hit the poor very particularly, and that is an ongoing problem. And people accumulated debts they couldn't even possibly repay. Finally, was the financial crisis a moral crisis? And I'm going to talk about the absence of honesty and integrity. Please note that I've put this fourth in my list. All right? This is the one which most people think is what went wrong. All right? It did go wrong, but I don't think it's the most important. It's the fourth one. Jesus taught, love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others what you would have them do to you. I love this Old Testament proverb. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. And basically, what the biblical material says is a party to a market transaction must consider the interests of the other persons, the other parties to the transaction, and in particular, dishonesty, dishonesty and deception are morally wrong. Well, what was the experience? Well, we all know about it, don't we? Telling lies, fixing markets, popular view of bad behavior. I have to say, I was shocked beyond belief to discover that Goldman Sachs, the greatest investment bank in the world, and you know, a hugely respected financial institution, sold securitized mortgage assets that they knew were bound to fail. 
All the evidence is there. They sold them. They knew they weren't going to give the returns that, they, that people were expecting, and they went on selling them. Why did they go on selling them? Well, partly because they saw a lot of people, as, as one Goldman Sachs employee said, Muppets. The Muppets out there will buy this thing. Um, and partly because they made lots of fees out of doing it. Well, we know all about fixing fi- LIBOR and fixing the foreign exchange markets. And, of course, this is now subjudicially. A number of folk are being tried for their wickedness in those areas. Um, I don't know whether you've been contacted endlessly on the phone about payment protection insurance. Probably you have. What was happening there? I'm afraid to tell you that your friendly bank deliberately went out and sold you payment protection insurance, which they knew perfectly well was worthless. Would you trust a banker? I'm not sure I would. Anyway, trust in the financial system collapsed. Okay, so that's in a nutshell, what went wrong. Okay? And it's partly technical and it's partly uh, other issues, particularly issues about the disjuncture between the uh, financial sector and the real sector of the economy. So how are we going to deal with this? Well, there's been a great deal said about a revolution in values. So Stephen Green, who was the, um, the, the chief executive or perhaps he's the chairman of HSBC, actually wrote a book on good values, where he said, we've got to kind of clean up our act in the financial sector. Anthony Jenkins, who until a month or two ago was the chief executive of Barclays, made it part of his kind of crusade within the bank to bring back uh, moral values. He lost his job. Um, But there is a strong sense in which what you really want in the financial sector is this focus on responsible stewardship, the responsible use of resources, and also um, honesty and integrity. Those are the things which which we need. In In the private household sector, I think all of us just need to be more prudent. All right? What we had, and I fear it's beginning again, We have people who say, I want it, I'm going to borrow it now, and not really thinking beyond a very short time horizon. So the question is, well, how might we actually change values? Well, the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards seriously considered requiring everyone who worked in the financial sector to take a kind of Hippocratic oath, all right? to sign up to a... uh, um, Interestingly enough, that didn't appear in the final report, and I'm not quite sure why not. Um, How can we persuade households? I'm just asking the question, because I don't know what the answer is. How can we persuade households to be more prudent about the way they conduct uh, their financial affairs? I suppose what I want to say about this is it actually is very difficult to change people's fundamental human nature. It seems as though we have within us this pursuit of personal gain and personal gratification which just absorbs us. And just telling people they shouldn't have it 
particularly when they're faced with an economy where it's all based on that, it's very unlikely that people are going to change their behavior. So the second thing I'm going to look at is, is regulation. And I think I won't go into this in great detail, but a great deal has been written about regulatory measures. Things like saying banks have to be much more prudent in the way that they hang on to many more assets, liquid assets, so that if there's a run, they can actually meet it. Uh, Criteria for consumer borrowing should be tightened up. And one of the things which the uh, Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards said, it said we need to put in place what's called a senior persons regime, which is that anybody who holds a senior position in a major bank has to be approved by a kind of a external body as a suitable person for doing that. And what's more, their responsibilities have to be identified precisely. So that if something goes wrong, the bankers can't do what they did last time, which was to say, it wasn't me, it was him. Or, it wasn't me, and I had no idea what was going on. So there's the idea is to bring kind of personal responsibility back and, as it were, put many more rules in place. I'm afraid I'm I'm an economist and I'm very cynical about regulation. And I'm cynical about regulation for two reasons. The first one is, uh, from looking at other areas where regulation has been tried, what you discover is that the the organisation you're trying to regulate is nearly two steps ahead of the regulator all the time. All right? And I'll tell you why. It's because if you try and regulate banks in a big way, they will hire the best accountants and the best lawyers to work out ways to go around the regulation. Um, this happened really big time um, in the United States. But in the United States, they had even a better way of doing it, which was as soon as regulation came on, they discovered a way in which they conducted business off balance sheet. That is, it wasn't their business. It actually operated outside the bank, but they collected lots of fees for doing it. That became known as the shadow banking sector. In the United States, it was bigger at its peak than the conventional banking sector, and none of it was regulated. It had all managed to escape regulation. So finally, what might we do? Well, again, I think I would argue that we need real structural reforms. And very quickly, I think we need to do something to make sure that we have responsible stewardship. We have to separate functions in the banking sector. We have to do something about lending to low-income households. So let let me talk about those Uh, briefly. As far as responsible stewardship is concerned, part of the problem that we've had is that short-term gains, that's what people are after in the financial sector. And there's one very simple way of stopping that, and that would be if we actually put a tax on financial transactions. Now, I have to tell you, this is deeply unpopular, Why is it deeply unpopular? Partly because it's what the European Commission proposed, so that has to be deeply unpopular, but partly because 
it would actually stop in its tracks a lot of what I've called the financial wizardry. Because once they have that tax on, it simply wouldn't be worth them doing the kind of very rapid uh, trading things which they've been doing. Secondly, I would like to put in place some incentives for long-term commitment rewarding responsible stewardship. In other words, what I would like to say is if somebody buys a share in a company and hangs on to it, the longer they hang on to it, the less the rate of capital gains tax. Why would that work? Well, it would work because it would mean that people would want to hold shares for much longer. And because they want to hold shares for much longer, they'd be much more concerned about what the company was doing. And so we might actually have shareholders who exercise some kind of control and power. Now, the next area I want to look at is simply um, the idea of separating the functions of retail banking, investment banking, and operations in financial markets. That's all in the Vickers report. All right? And the idea simply is to say, what we want to do is to organize the financial sector so that if things go wrong in the asset markets... If things go wrong in investment banking, it doesn't impinge on the retail sector, the retail banking sector. And the way to do that is simply to put in, in place some kinds of separation of functions. And finally, a third structural reform is that of lending to low-income households. Somehow we have to ensure that we have a welfare system which doesn't leave low-income households resorting to short-term loans. And that means creating alternatives to payday lenders. It also means facilitating debt forgiveness, and it means doing much more in the way of social housing. So let me, let me conclude. The crisis, no doubt, identified serious technical flaws in the functioning of financial markets and institutions. But I want to say, actually, moral issues were also very significant. And the one I want to focus on, really, is one which has not been focused on. And that is the failure of the financial sector to focus on supporting the real economy. That's what, at core, went wrong. And that is a Christian, whereas a Christian, I think the core of the failure lies. Because it seems to me that what we should be doing with our economy is trying to create jobs, trying to create services, trying to serve uh, the economy and people in it. And finally, I just want to say, in my view, a revolution in values, hope on, I think it's very unlikely to happen. Regulation, I reckon actually they'll always find ways around. So I think we need to have some quite severe or serious structural changes to the way that financial markets function. That's been a bit of a gallop through all of that, um, but I'm very happy to take questions. If they're too hard, Andrew will answer them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm.